0: Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we'll explore our interview with the King of Rock and Soul, R&B legend Solomon Burke. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino.
0: I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino.
1: And I'm Alex Rossner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Well, Welcome back everybody to the Music History Project. I'm very happy about this particular episode as we're going to be sharing with you the entire interview with the great Solomon Burke. Boy, what an experience that was. 2010 at his uh, home in the uh, Hollywood Hills in Los Angeles absolutely fantastic we'll talk more about that as the podcast goes on because that experience was uh, one of a kind for sure and just having this great document now this great interview uh, he's now passed and it's just great to look back and think wow here's a guy who generated so many innovations in popular music and he collaborated with some of the best so i'm eager to share this with you today
0: okay so let's get started in this first segment He talks about the influence of his grandmother. You know what I had? I
2: had an incredible grandmother. That's her picture there, who's the the monarch, who's the the head of our spiritual life and life, who gave us music all the time. We were compelled on Saturday after doing our chores to sit down and listen to the Top 40, which is a radio broadcast used to come on every Saturday. And then we would listen to an hour of opera and then an hour of the country uh oh hall of fame you know uh, grand Right. that's what we did on Saturday we listened to music huh. and then we could listen to we could listen to batman and and the shadow <laughs> after that and then read the bible and and uh, you had a few minutes after that you eat and you go out and play for 10 minutes and get ready for church on Sunday mm-hmm. So that's what Saturdays was like, you know so we got a chance to hear all the music the country music, the jazz, the pop, the blues. We had a cousin who was, who was a very famous singer and, and actor, Paul Robeson, and we listened to his music intensely, you know, and it was something that was instead and embedded in our minds that, to stand fast and listen and learn. And my grandmother was a very stickular person about pronunciation. She says, if you can't sing it, you need to say it. If you can't say it, don't sing it. Because if people don't understand what you're singing, then they don't understand what you're saying. So you're not going to get your message across. Mm-hmm. So I learned an awful lot from this great woman. who's was just awesome. an incredible lady. Incredible. Greatest cook in the world, but incredible teacher.
1: And spiritually at some
2: Totally spiritual. Yeah. Uh, born yeah with a great gift as as a spiritualist, who was a great she, a great seer. And remarkable stories, and just incredible stories. In my book, there's just a series of her events that took place in our life. You know, my godfather was the, the late Daddy Grace, you know, and when he would come to the house, it was like a fairy tale, you know, uh, with the limousines and the guards and the band playing outside the house. You know what I mean? This guy comes in with the long fingernails, you know, and suits and the diamonds, and he give everybody a hundred dollar bill. You A hundred dollar bill, come on, you know, you know, you're seven years old. Somebody give you a hundred dollar bill? Money was that big those days. <laughs> and we said, when is Godfather coming back? <laughs> that was a great life, man. You know, the, the No Father Divine, and had another cousin who was great prophet in Detroit, Prophet Jones. So we had a wonderful experience of a spiritual atmosphere in our life. My uncle, who was an incredible musician, played the piano, preached from the organ and the piano. You know, and he did the Jerry D. Lewis thing. He could stand up on top of the piano, you know, and then lean down and play a little bit and preach a little bit. He was, I said, I can't do that. But God's good. God's good. I mean, you know, to survive that and to live through that and to experience those things and to be able to say how wonderful it is to have had the privilege to know a Otis reading from the beginning and to have a, a Otis and a Joe Tex on tour with you for three years before their hits, you know, and, and watch them write the songs live right there and watch little Rogers Redding, his little brother, hang out with him during the summer, who's now a giant agent, you know, a fantastic businessman. And uh, to live with these guys and see them happen, to see them just develop into great heroes and legends, you know, it's an amazing, an amazing thing. James Brown, you know, pfft, one of the greatest entertainers of all times so He's someone who's... Beyond the legendary status, as far as I'm concerned, who has continued to carry himself and bill himself as Mr. Entertainment. And uh, incredible for his age. He looks fantastic. Still has hair. I guess he's using some of my hair now. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As we heard, Solomon Bork's uh, grandma was a great influence to him. And uh, he knew many, many people, as we will hear in the course of this interview. Dan, can you tell us why he knew so many people and uh, famous, famous names? Yeah, all of our friends, you know, that's just so cool. I love when he says that, all of our friends. He was very charismatic, right? Uh, You can tell that just in the first few seconds of this interview. And I just think wherever he went, he walked into a room. People were gravitated towards him. And so he met. Everybody you can think of. And he had a lot of respect for people that came just before him. And I think that we'll hear a little bit about that Uh, when he talks about uh, Faye Adams and people like that. There was a great deal of respect that he had. So I think he sought a lot of those folks out. And he was there at the very beginning of Atlantic Records when all of Ray Charles and all those people were there and, and quite heavily involved with recording. But he also had a television and a radio show. So I think that he was always looking for guests and had opportunities to run into all sorts of people. Uh, I kind of wish we had more time with him because there are some of the people that he brought up that he said wonderful things about. We're going to hear something later on about Otis Redding that is absolutely incredible. I'm a big Otis Redding fan. And to have that perspective, it's just a little bit of insight that makes me listen to that music a little differently. So uh just a wonderful person that I again I think he just drew people to him. I wanted to also mention a funny thing that um is even a debate now on his Wikipedia page and that was what year was this guy born. Um 1936 is listed, um 1939 is listed and 1940 is listed and um March 21st, 1940 is what he wrote on his release form for this interview. It's also the date on his final resting place at uh, uh, in the Hollywood Hills at Forest Lawn. Um, So that's the one that the family went by. So that's the one that we go by. But it is kind of funny that, you know, um, we're not really sure when he was born. He was born in uh, West Philadelphia and grew up around music, uh, thanks mostly to his grandmother. But uh, he formed a quartet for a church when he was a teenager. And in fact, um, I think it was the uh, Cornerstone Baptist Church had a contest And he won that contest as a solo artist. And that led to people coming to him, a record producer saying, hey, we got to get you on Wax. Uh, Apollo uh, Records was the first and he recorded a couple of tunes there before he joined Atlantic Records in 1960. And that's, of course, where he had all of his big hits. Uh, But just a really kind of a remarkable background. And um, I'm really excited uh, to hear more about who he talks about, but I do ever regret that we didn't talk as much about him as we did about all of his friends. So, uh, um, but we got a great interview. So let's hear more of it. Where are we to next? In the next segment, we hear a little bit more about soul music among many other things. What's amazing about this to me is where you came up with this idea or this thought Of being able to express yourself vocally and I think really the beginning of soul music is based on that premise wouldn't you think well it's what you feel inside you know we we came
2: up with that word because it was necessary for me to be on Atlantic Records at that point when we had signed with Atlantic we had no idea that their whole intentions was to make me one of the top rhythm and blues artists and that wouldn't work for the church so we had to come up with some idea of what we could be classified as. And when we came back to them with the word soul, which was agreeable with the church, of course, you know. Soul singer, oh yeah, sure. Saving souls is a secret weapon for the church, you know. And uh, Jerry West is a soul singer? We're the number one rhythm and blues artist in the world. Our record label is so big, people just know it by the colors, red and black. You know, and I'm just, well, <laughs> can I be a soul singer on the red and black label? You know, I don't know, so I'm going to man, I don't care what I do, man, let the man sing, I don't care, let him sing. You want to be a soul singer? Let him be a soul singer. Give him the song. <laughs> so that's how it all happened, is that right? and soul revolved into what it is today. It's been up and down. You know, for a while we had the soul charts, and then we didn't have the soul charts, and, and we lost great people like Luther Vandross, who was so incredible you know, and amazing voices, the Barry Whites, you know, who were just so fantastically soul singers who just were just born for it, you know, just the amazing situation. And look at Usher, who has so much excitement, and that inner soul is in way of just weaved inside of him, I guess, from his parents, you know, from the, the generation. You look at him, it's just amazing, I mean. Even Ludacris, you know, soulful rapper. You know, they, 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 they have that touch of soul. Let's say Mary J. Bly, just soul. You know, you just dig into how they're working it, moving it, making it happen, making it shake and bake, you know, and it's incredible. Mariah Carey, come on. What can I say? You know, it's touch of class, beauty, and soul with, with intelligence and, and all the graces that makes her who she is. You know, it's wonderful. And I'm still here, you know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank God. From the beginning of of the concept of classifying yourself as a soul singer to now the term soul has so much soul to it. Yes, isn't that wonderful? How do you think it got there and who do you sort of credit? I certainly credit you. You were one of the pioneers of that concept.
2: Well, I credit the will of God uh, for expanding that gift to so many people. Black and white, you know, uh, you have uh, a lot of great artists, Tom Jones, who's very soulful. You know, uh, um, if you just think about Marianne Faithful, you go back to the English uh, singers who were just incredible. Uh, I just can't even imagine, there's a list, there's a list of line of them that was just, we would be talking here all day long, I mean. Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, of course, uh, Aretha Franklin, the queen, who will always be the queen, you know. Uh, and It goes on and on and on, you know. Uh, Michael Bolden, soulful guy, you know. Nat King Cole, who was classic soul. Perry Como, who was a soulful singer, you know, just natural. Dean Martin, who could be soulful, just doing anything, you know. I mean, come on. Frank Sinatra, who was the the king of kings and had his own soul. He delivered what he felt. And soul is about what you feel, what comes out of you, and you put your taste into it. Just like you're a very soulful man for what you do the way you do it. It's the magic of it that's inside. It's the feeling inside that's developed through your own mind and thought and personal belief.
1: And what a blessing it must
2: be to be able to
1: sing that. Yeah, I, I I keep loving it, you
2: know. Country artists, you know, when you start talking about the country artists, from Hank Williams to Garth Brooks to all the new country singers, the female country singers are incredible. Dolly Parton, who writes those great country songs. You know, come on. Uh, that's soul, man. That's just, you You know, how can you forget? How can you not remember Charlie Daniels and all these people are just, you know, Willie Nelson. Come on. Guy can stand up like this and say, I love you. And you go, oh man, Willie Nelson, it's a monster. It's just so, just natural.
1: That's the Yeah. You have had the um, occasion of working with some of these guys that you were mentioning earlier. And I wonder if you could expand a little bit. Um, for example, I never got to meet Sam Cooke. Could you tell me a little bit about him?
2: Gentlemen. Performer, businessman, classy, um, best dresser. I think the competition between dressing was Al Benson, who was a disc jockey from Chicago, Jackie Wilson and Sam (laughs) Cooke. And uh, incredible dressers. Uh, Show business dressers were Little Richard, uh, who was just from head to toe sharp, immaculate, band sharp, immaculate. Then Lloyd Price, you know, and this goes on. You know, it just goes on. Arthur Price, those guys are just incredible. You know, um, Duke Ellington, class act, soulful, you know. But Sam Cooke had a magic that was just there forever. And you hear it in his songs, you hear it in your mind. And when you hear Sam Cook's home, you know it's Sam Cooke. There's no, there's no change in it. There's no variation from it. It's just pure Sam Cooke.
1: Yeah. That's really cool. And, and what about Otis? You told me a little bit about him. What, what do you remember your first meeting with him? What, what was that like?
2: My first meeting with Otis is when I saw him with his little band in Macon, and uh, he had this great drummer with this big, bass drum you know the big large bass drum and uh, incredible sound and they, he had a song called shout shamalama bam i didn't understand a word he was saying but i loved his rhythm and i loved his technique and his style he was a tall dark handsome guy with just that magnetism that says come on girls you know, and it's, Lord have mercy Oh my soul. How many chickens have I stole? Ten last night and twelve before. Going back to my stills, ten eleven more still stealing and, jam, and that just captivated me, man. I said, oh, God, I need this guy. I need to take this guy with me on my show. And that's how we met. That's how we got together. And he sang that song for three years.
1: <laughs> three years?
2: Three years before these arms of mine came into mind. <laughs> there was a promoter in Miami who said to me, The the Shout Shamalama guy and the guy who throws the mic and hits people, Joe Tex. I don't want him on the show. Now you're gonna have to cancel him out of your show, or you can't play here. I said, Well, I guess I can't play here because that's my show. He said, Well, nobody understands what the other guy's saying. And the people are terrified of that guy throwing a mic. He looks like he's gonna hit people every time. I said, that's the show. He said, I can't have it, I can't have it. So he went to cancel, and he figured, you know, I was gonna just cancel Otis and Joe out, so I just put everybody on the bus and get ready to leave. He says, are you crazy? He's standing in front of the bus, and says, are you out of your mind? There's some people coming in and out. Put those crazy people back. I said, we need two more hundred dollars, man, for him being crazy. <laughs> And so, Otis says, Man, I'm going to kill him tonight. I'm going to do two shout-jammer Alabamas. <laughs> but they were incredible guys, man. Just unique personalities. And Otis Redding, you know, come on. Uh, a father, a brother, big brother. And I remember his first real love was a Ford Fairlane, Burgundy Ford Fairlane with skirts. And, you know, the steering wheel, the knob on the steering wheel with the exhaust mufflers, and that was his dream. I was a, You know, we're not talking about a Bentley, Rolls-Royce. We're not talking about, you know, a mansion in the sky. Just owning the little land that he had, building a swimming pool, and that Ford Fairlane. He was a happy guy. I mean, he and that's the kind of guy he was, just down to earth and real. So you, when you listen to a song like on Dock of the Bay, and you say, I can see that. You see that. You understand that this was the way God intended for him to leave us in that manner. So that song would forever be embedded in our mind. That that's what oldest reading was. was. just a real down home country guy who loved people and loved his family and could go fishing with you. You know, everybody can't do that.
1: That's true. Yeah. Do you remember, uh, where you were when you heard
2: that he had died? Uh, very, very much so. I had talked with him 10 days prior to that to go on tour with him. And he had just had the surgery on his throat. And he sang down in the valley to me over the phone says, Big Soul, you better come on, go out with me, man. I got a new plane and everything. I said, man, I'm glad you got that new plane, man, because that old plane was crazy. It cut off in the middle of the air. Yeah, I got a big plane now, baby, you know. I said, man, I can't make it, man. I got the kids here, and and two of my kids had the chicken pops, and and my wife was scared to death because she didn't never dealt with the chicken pops, and she never had it, and she thought she had it. So I was like stuck at home, you know, with the eleven kids and the chicken pops, and couldn't go on tour. And um, to hear that his plane went down, you know, on his way to Madison, just you know, like no. No, it's not true. Can't happen. You know, there must be some mistake. It took a long time to understand that and accept that and realize it. And to lose someone who was so dedicated to the music business and so dedicated to being real, wasn't a drinker, didn't do drugs, didn't smoke, come on, you know, what, what do you say? But God has a plan greater than the plans that we have. And he has a limit and a time for all of us. And there's a place for every one of us in life. And that was his place. What a lovely family left behind. Great children, great wife, still dedicated, still Mrs. Redding, still the queen. You know, that's magical.
1: You know? Does it surprise you when people like me get confused about who comes first, Solomon or Otis? Because Oh no. Your styles are oh st- no, no. I can hear both of you in each other's songs.
2: No, none whatsoever. It's an honor to even be confused on what comes first. It's really the chicken. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Should
2: have known. <laughs> it's not the egg. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> So is you know there's so many things you can talk about and so many things we could talk. We could be here for days, you know, telling these great stories. I mean, from the Joe Tech stories, you know, to the the Jerry Butlin impressions, and come on, I mean, you know, it's on and on and on. You know, so many artists have been forgotten, like Lloyd Price, you know, D. Clark. Hey, little girl in the high school sweater, you know, you you weren't even born. I saw so. I saw. Big Maybell, you know, and people like that. My God, incredible. incredible. Candy, 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 you know. I tried to imitate it on an album called Souls Alive. Really? And I have a daughter named Candy, who I, I named Candy because of that song. And I remember Big Maybelle in Chicago, and her husband was like five feet two. And he weighed about 110 pounds. And he didn't want anybody to touch her. You know, don't go near her. And she was a big, beautiful woman. You know, when I say big, because I'm bigger. than whenever I say big, I say beautiful. You know, so she was a big, beautiful, luscious woman, you know. But she had a, a tough time walking, you know. And they would always put her on, like, on the second floor of the dressing rooms. and She would, it would take her maybe an hour to get down the steps. So by the time she got up the steps, it was time for her to come back down to do the next show. And he would say, don't touch her, don't touch her, don't touch her, don't touch her, don't touch her. And you would see her struggle to that stage. And everybody would just like be standing in a heartbeat saying, is she gonna make it? Is she gonna make it? And that band would hit, and she'd just step out of her shoes. she never put her shoes on It was and say, candy, candy, candy. And just walk on stage like, hey. And you said, I thought she couldn't walk. I thought this lady was hurting. And she'd walk on that stage and she'd perform, man, until you brought the house down. You know, and then when she'd walk on that stage, she would literally collapse behind that curtain. And that was one of the reasons why she didn't do encores. Because she would literally just, she'd given her all to every performance. So much of the people don't know what entertainers go through and what they do. And it's an amazing thing, you know. You see him on the stage, and you think, "Man, life must be fun. So God's must be having a ball." But some of them back there, man, are in tears. Or... I know every time I walk on the stage, I'm asking God to allow me to have the gift when I open my mouth that something comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and people would be like, "You crazy?" I said, "No, no, no. This is not me. This is not mine." This is a gift from God, and I have to ask them, may I use it? And that's it. every performance. It's, that's what it's about.
1: Do you remember your first um, recording gig?
2: My first recording gig or my first recording?
1: Your first recording.
2: First recording was with Apollo Records okay. for Bess and Ike Berman in New York, and uh, I remember it more than well my grandmother passed on december the 19th i recorded on december the 21st and they released a copy of the disc the disc the 78 disc on december the 24th it was on the radio a song called christmas presents from heaven and i never could imagine how fast they could make a record it wasn't in the stores but the idea that they had made the disc from the 78s and put it on the radio in Philadelphia and was playing it in Trigou's record shop and playing it on the radio was just amazing for me. So I remember my first recording with all my heart. And what an amazing situation. The song dedicated to the memory of my grandmother. Uh, the only song that she ever wrote with me. And I wrote for her. And when you listen to the song, you realize it's, A legendary message of knowing she was going home.
1: I think part of it for me is knowing how spiritual you are in your music. And it didn't matter what you sang about, it still came out. And we try. And I think also knowing your heritage is so important. And that comes across in everything I hear of yours. Everything.
2: Well, thank you. I mean, Thank you that, so much.
1: You can't say that about most people. I mean, it, it falters when somebody's probably, you know, the manager's telling you to do it this way or a record producer's telling you to do it this way.
2: Yeah, it gets a little crazy sometimes, okay. you know. It gets, you know, we've been very blessed. I, I had uh, a great blessing back in 2000. I recorded a record for a label called Fat Possum.
1: Hmm.
2: And this was my first record I ever won a Grammy on. It was called Don't Give Up On Me. And I, to this day, consider it one of the classics in my life. And from there, we went to Shot Factory. And we've done some great things with them. We're getting ready to do now a brand new country album, which we're in the process of doing right now. And I'm very excited about what's going on because I haven't done the country songs since 1960 so, uh, and, and 1970. So it's going back now all the way to that time zone and turning it back around. So it's gonna be wonderful. It's gonna be exciting.
1: That's great. Yeah. I wonder if you um, for example, I was looking at what they consider the Solomon Burke's greatest hits. You know this <laughs> one, right?
2: I have no idea because you know that what they do and what they've been doing for years is just keep re putting keep putting out the same songs over and over and over and changing the titles.
1: Oh really? To the album <laughs>
2: covers. And I think yeah, yeah just theater. just mixing the order up, you know. So <laughs> It could be crowded. Me, everybody needs somebody Tonight's Night, I don't know, but normally, if that's what would be on one of those albums, I would say the greatest hits from the years of Atlantic. Right. You know, "Proud Mary" was one of the one of the great songs for us. And you know, what a blessing that I've continued to stay in the race of life and music, and believing in the true foundation that the race is not given to the swift. But those that endure to the end. And I'm trying to constantly keep climbing, keep moving, keep producing, keep recording, keep suggesting, keep learning, and keep earning those credits and credibilities to be able to say, I'm still in the race.
0: You're listening to the Music History Project. If you'd like to see the interviews that the podcast is based on and many more interesting interviews related to the music industry, go to nam.org slash library. So Dan, can you tell us what's coming up next?
1: This is a fun interview. I'm so glad we're reliving this, you guys. Uh, what a great experience that was. Um yes. One of the things that really endeared me to Mr. Burke was the fact that he had such respect for his peers and the people who came before him. And I think that we probably spent more time talking about all the people he knew rather than his own career. And you're going to hear a lot of that coming up now. But I love that he's listing these names. I really think it's an important thing for us to take in this guy's knowledge uh, because he had such respect for people that some of those names are sadly being forgotten. But take a minute, you know, there might be a name there that you've heard, but you don't know that much about. That was the case for me in Little Esther. I had had a 45 of Little Esther, but I didn't know much more about her until he brought her up and talked so nice about her. I thought, okay, I'm going to go and dig around a little bit. And now she's one of my favorite recording artists. I have a ton of her stuff now. And I just think that, This might happen to you, listeners out there. Uh, You might have a name in there that he mentions that you want to dig around a little bit more. I think that would be a cool thing to do. He also had a great deal of respect for contemporary music and artists, many of which were influenced by him uh, and acknowledged that. But I just love the fact that he takes the time to talk about hip-hop and some of the genres that he wasn't necessarily recording but had appreciation for. So let's get back to it. Yeah, you have worked and played and and known just about everybody in in music, I would think. Well, we know quite a few. There's so many
2: great young people that are coming in today, in today's music, in today's world. It's just amazing what's happening with the music world today. I mean, hip-hop is not just hip-hop. You know, Hip-hop is a whole brand-new realm of the feeling of soul within that expresses itself in the manner of life, in the style of life that our young people have been living and are living through and then lived through and the things that they're going through without expressing it in a blues manner. They're expressing it with deep rhythm and with a new rhythm and with a new time and a new phase. It's an amazing thing to hear the anger, to hear the pain, to hear the insult, to hear the, 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 the lack of knowledge that becomes million-selling records and ship 10, 20 million. You know, it's amazing that they're able to pick up the minds and hearts of others around the world that recognize the same suffering, that recognize the same pain, the same situation mentally, physically, spiritually, no matter what race, creed, or color. And this is why the hip hop and the rap music is so valuable to our society today.
1: When I think back of the early days of your career and and of soul music in general, Sam Cooke and yourself had
2: a a direct
1: (laughs) link to their gospel roots. Absolutely. I mean, you could hear and feel it.
2: Yeah, we came from the church. Do you
1: think the same could be said now, or is it less so, do you think?
2: I think it's more of, you know, my mother was religious, my grandmother was religious, and yes, I went to church or... I, didn't, I probably wasn't in the choir, but, you know, I, I had that feeling, you know, that uh, we heard Sam Cooke, and uh, we heard about Jackie Wilson, and we heard about Ray Charles and James Brown, and, you know, we know about Aretha Franklin, and we're doing our thing now. We're expressing our thing, our way, and it's a new form of religion. It's a religion based upon their belief, and the word of God says that we're saved by our belief. And once we understand that the true factor of life is not denomination, but situation, and when you take situation and clean it up and make it real inside for every man, woman, boy, and girl, then they find out the direction of life they're going in spiritually. And it's impossible to classify yourself as a Baptist or Catholic or Muslim or Presbyterian or whatever. Whatever. You learn that there's the God of life that sustains you, that prepares you, that keeps you, and supplies your needs. And with that help, you're encouraged to go further and to make better steps of life. And the Word of God also says if you make one step, that he would physically, mentally, and spiritually, and financially make two for you. But you first must do something for yourself. So, the encouragement comes directly from the words of wisdom, saying we must learn to be obedient to ourselves and to help ourselves to make ourselves a better person and a better world and a better place.
1: Absolutely.
2: You got me on on a box here. Come (laughs) on. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Pass the chicken.
1: (laughs) Are you so articulate? Would would you mind if I asked you? uh, you're so good at explaining things. What t- what, how would you, in your words, describe the blues?
2: The deep spiritual expression of life, love, pain, hurt, need, sorrow, hunger, and desire, and love.
1: Do you have to experience those things to sing the blues?
2: Everybody has the blues. Because we all experience different things in life. And we all have an experience that we're going to experience that's going to change our lives one way or the other. None of us are perfect. We all fall short. We all make mistakes. And there will come a time in our life if we've never had the blues in our life, we're going to have the blues if it's no more than somebody hit my BMW and I don't know who, and believe me, if you don't have insurance, you got the blues.
1: <laughs> called Geico.
2: Hello. <laughs> the little bug won't do it for you.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting to me that someone who has helped define a whole genre of music called soul is so... Entrenched with the roots of soul, which are the blues. I mean, you won the W.C. Handy Award, which that I'm must grateful. Have been,
2: I'm very honored. Must have been I, I, on. I, I I honor it. I, I keep it up there all the time. I'm just excited about it. You know.
1: I mean, that's the father of the blues, and to have that <laughs> legacy continue through I'm, you I'm, and through people uh, even today, it must be
2: to to be on the same stage with the you know with Irma Thomas, you know, uh, the daughter of Rufus Thomas, and to be on the same stage with Buddy Guy and those people in BB King. Come on, you know Little Milton. These people are you know Muddy Waters and uh, you know John Lee Hooker. Names and friends of mine who are some are here and some are not here. Were just such a wonderful experience. You know, I had the privilege last year in Europe of sharing a stage with BB King, and the whole time I'm sitting there, I'm crying. Because all the years that I've known this man, we traveled together on the road on tours and things. I never had this real experience on stage. We played together on the bus and in the rooms, in the dressing rooms, you know, in in the hotels. But to be on stage and actually be part of his performance, it was just like, you know, you just won the Oscar and the Grammy and the Blues Award and all of it right together. You've got it all. This is the night. You're the golden glove. You're, you're everything tonight. This is, this is your night. And I was just sitting there in amazement. It's like, thank God for the miracle. Thank God for this moment. Thank God for life. Thank God for this experience. Mm. And what a lesson I learned. I heard B.B. King for the first time like I never heard him before. Right up on me.
1: And that was such a wonderful feeling. Did you ever know? Um, I think it's um, Esther Phillips.
2: Are you kidding? Hello. Little Esther? I worked with Little Esther. We had a same manager called Jimmy Evans Agency who managed myself and Wilson Pickett, Charlie and Ray, Wine Only Blues, Harris, Big Maybell. And he managed all of us. And Little Esther could sing. Inside of a crocus She could sing from the car into the club. If you gave her the mic in the rain, she could sing in the rain and not get shocked. She could throw the mic down and walk and sing. Uh, the blues came from her as more natural as Sachimo could play a trumpet. The blues came from little Esther, like Ray Charles playing a piano on a rainy night in Georgia. She had a charm and a mystic attitude that just says, you know what? I love it, I need it, I want it. And I don't care if you like it or not, this is the way it is and this is the way it was and this is the way it's gonna be right now. Faye Adams, another Great singer who had a song that shook the world called "Shake a Hand." Shouldn't have to say anything else after that. You're talking about people who are just incredible legends, and when you go back into the female genre of black blues singers, Dinah Washington, Queen. Did
1: you get to know her? Oh, oh. God! You knew everybody. I can stop oh. asking.
2: God, I mean, you know. Dinah Washington was the first female artist I've ever seen perform in a full-length mink coat that was dragging the ground. It was too long for her. (laughs) And I didn't understand it. I said, why does this lady have this coat that's dragging the ground? Because she deserved that. That was her robe of honor. Her white ermine mink. Coat, and she would walk out and she would demand no drinking, no eating, no glasses clicking, you know. And when she would start singing, the world stood still and listened to Dinah Washington. You know, the band was always right. And if they weren't right, she would say, just the piano. And you were in for the treat of the night. And when she would leave the state, she would just throw a kiss and they'd throw a make corner coat on her and she'd walk away and that was it. You know, uh, what a difference a day makes. 24 little hours. Sunshine and the flowers where we used to lay. You're talking about artists, you're talking about performers. You know, people who gave their life to the music
1: and their heart and their soul. And you mentioned a while ago people keep asking you, did you you get the respect and, and the accolades you, you deserve? Did many of those people, like Faye Adams, do you think she got what she deserved? No, no. I, I never got that in Laverne
2: Baker? Ruth Brown, who built Atlantic Records all on her own, has never gotten the respect that she deserves. I mean, people don't even remember that before there was a Ray Charles, before there was the Drifters and the Coasters and Bobby Darin and all these other people, there was Ruth Brown who single-handedly held that record company together for seven years, just singing Ruth Brown. Laverne Baker came along with Tweedley D. You know, come on. These ladies were ladies of soul and fortune. You know, we look back on it and say, why didn't they get the recognition? Why haven't they been paid the homage that they should have? Why haven't they received the Lifetime Achievement Awards? And isn't there an Oscar for them in the music business? Isn't there something? You know, the golden Grammy, the the, the diamond Grammy that should be given to them. And giving it to them while they're living is so important. It's very nice to pay tribute to them when they're gone, when they're deceased. But the feeling is missing because the person that you're honoring doesn't know it.
0: Dan, could you share a little bit about your experience going to Solomon's house? Oh,
1: thanks for asking. Yes, yes, yes. That was really great. Um, Been a fan for many, many years. So I was, of course, playing his greatest hits from the drive from San Diego to Los Angeles and the Hollywood Hills. And I was so revved up. I was just like, this is so exciting. I get to the front door and his personal assistant, Lester, was there with his white gloves on and politely asking me to take off my shoes and uh, showed me to the uh, front room right next to the fireplace where his big throne uh, that you see in the background of the interview. Um, he also took that everywhere. I I saw this great uh, performance on the uh, David Letterman show and he had the exact same throne. So that they had to ship it. I don't know how they did it, but they got it. He couldn't have had two of those things. They were. Just, it was so unique looking. Uh, anyway, uh, he sat at the throne. He came over, just just a, you know, a bear hug, and really happy to see me, and wanted to know a little bit about the program. And it was just really an endearing thing. It's like, I know why he had so many friends because you just felt like. I felt almost immediately, oh, this is my new friend. This is really great. That's the only time I met him was for the interview. But at that moment, I thought, oh, my gosh, my new best friend is Solomon Berg. How cool is this? (laughs) So so towards the end of the interview, um, Lester was putting things in the next room um, that I could see, the dining room. And I didn't know exactly what it was because um, I'd i have to turn too much to look. But I, could, I n- did notice that he kept going back and forth, back and forth. Well, what he was doing was filling that entire big, huge dining room table with all kinds of food. I mean, like full cakes, more than one. And uh, a chicken, I think a full chicken. And uh, I just remember lots of sides, lots of side dishes potatoes uh, cooked like three different ways and lots of greens, collard greens and spinach and sauces. And what I found out later that this was all for me. I mean, what? He's okay. Now we're going to eat. We, okay. Not even Lester joined us. So we sat and we ate and there was no way we're going to eat all that food. So I noticed that slowly some family members, you know, he had 21 children and 90 grandchildren at the time of his passing. So slowly other family members. And then I felt a lot better. Like, okay, good. This is not all for me, but I got to be the first one to eat it with him. And he kept talking about his sauces. He had all these little tiny bowls with different sauces that, I mean, like when I mean little, you could probably have like a little dab on two or three bites. And then that would be the end of it. He had dozens of them and he was just, uh, this one has a little bit more vinegar than that one over there. And this one has more spices and he just loved his sauces. So <laughs> it was a wonderful experience, at, one I will never forget. I appreciate you asking Suzanne, because, um, you know, it was, it was a, once in a lifetime kind of thing. I felt like, you know, it was, uh, here's a guy I greatly appreciated and admired, uh, musically. And now as a human being, you know, he was just, he talked about being kind to people. You know, he talked about having a heart for other people. I thought that those were great terms that he used. And so, uh, I guess now we're going to hear the part of talking about his home and, and his instruments there. And, um, I think it's a, it's a good reminder of a very special day.
0: I do have one follow-up question. How many pieces of cake did you have?
1: Oh, you know what? I'm sure I did not eat healthy that day, but I cannot honestly remember how much. I don't usually like cake, but he had fudge too, and I know I had oh, some fudge. Oh, with walnuts? With walnuts, okay, yeah. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good questions.
0: <laughs> no, no problem.
1: <laughs> okay, shall we get back to it? Yes. I've noticed some very remarkable instruments just here in this room. You have a Hammond D3 with a Leslie speaker. You have a, a, Tom, a Thomas that I don't think I've ever seen with the Moog. Yeah, attached. and it
2: works, it works, wow. yeah. Uh,
1: tell me a little bit about, about your musical instruments.
2: This house is dedicated to God. This is God's house. And this is my parsonage. And this is where I give private interviews and private meetings. and conferences and the ministers and deacons and elders and singers and choir directors and things come here often there's choirs here just on the floor on the steps and we sing and we pray and we meditate and we send prayers out we do our radio broadcasts from here we do television ministry from here so this is a very special blessed house everything in this house was a gift God has given me all the furniture and things were all gifts. And God has been very good to me. And I'm very proud of that. You know, with 21 children, 83 grandchildren, and 18 great-grandchildren, I'm blessed. You know, and on the weekend, this house turns into a, well, what, what do we call it? We call it a daycare center. <laughs> because there's a minimum of 15 to 18 kids here. And uh, you, you'll go into the pantry, and you'll see I kind of prepare for them to to be here every weekend. I, I love my grandkids, my great-grandkids, and and my kids are just all grown up doing their thing. I've got undertakers and doctors and lawyers and military specialists and people who've just dedicated their lives to doing good things and great things. We've got some kids who had some problems, you know, and we're praying that praying with them and praying them through that. And none of us are perfect. We all have faults. We've all fallen short in some way in our life. The idea is to pick ourselves up and keep running, keep moving, keep going forward, and never look back.
1: said. Do you still play those?
2: I play a little bit, you know, yeah. but uh, by, my Piano players come over. My people come over. Rudy Copeland comes over here, and he's here playing. And we do a lot of writing here, a lot of meditation here, a lot of meditation. Sometimes the midnight meditation here is incredible, you know, just totally spiritual. And it's very important. It's very, very important for my family as well as for myself and for other people around the world.
1: And you said your next album that you're working on now is actually? It's a country
2: album, country album and the gospel album. So it's just going to be so much fun. You know. Uh, we're going to Nashville to cut the country album, finishing up the gospel album here. So it's just going to be just great. Those. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And it's just so wonderful talking with you. Oh, nice. Thank you for this opportunity.
1: You're the best.
2: So are you. Oh, what a pleasure. You made my money. Hey, likewise. Now listen, i prepared a little lunch for you. Okay, you got to have a snack for you go. You can't just run off and wind up at Denny's somewhere.
1: (laughs) What an iconic musician and generous man. Without a doubt. Well said, Alex.
0: Well, I sure learned a lot today, including the importance of pairing the correct sauce with the right meat.
1: Good. I'm glad that's your takeaway. I also wanted to mention quickly just a few songs for those people who may not be that familiar with Mr. Burke's work. When he was at Atlantic Records, he was working with the producer Jerry Wexler, and those guys came up with some great tunes, including Just Out of Reach of My Two Open Arms and Cry to Me, which is a very famous tune. You probably have heard that on many records. Um, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love is also a great rendition uh, recorded there at at, uh, Atlantic Records. When he switched over to Bell Records, he did a fantastic version of the Credence Clearwater revival song Proud Mary in 1969. Great, great rendition. You guys got to check that out. Then he moved over uh, to a couple of other record labels and recorded some religious uh, music, which is also very much worth checking out. Uh, His final recording was in 2002 on Fat Possum Records, and that's Don't Give Up On Me. And I really encourage you guys, um, especially if you're familiar with his uh, earlier work, all his big hits in the 60s, hearing his final recording is definitely worth it it's an eye opener because he's he's seasoned you know he's he's an older guy and he really knows how to sing the blues there's just no doubt about it great album plus i could tell you guys were smirking at the name of fat Possum records
0: (laughs) we're trying to contain ourselves so you have your homework thank you very much for joining us till next time bye-bye
1: bye-bye bye Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino,
0: Suzanne Del Fiorentino,
1: and Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.